Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Draw Show podcast. Today on the pod, a mid-opposition city hall approved body cameras for Vancouver police officers. We talk privacy and cost. Plus, BC's new Attorney General Nikki Sherman joins us to talk public safety and what's on her agenda when it comes to crime in courts. And does a four-day work week actually work? We look at a new trial involving companies around the globe where employers actually make this standard practice. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Start with Vancouver City Hall. All frontline officers with the Vancouver Police Department will be fitted with body-worn cameras by 2025. As City Council voted on the issue last night, the motion instructs staff to start costing out the cameras and data storage and to return the budget for the project by early 2024. The rollout of body cameras by 2025. Now, the plan, however, does not have the full support of City Council. Joining me now is Councillor Pete Fry. Uh, he is a uh, Vancouver City Councillor with the Green Party. He joins us now. Councillor Fry, thank you for speaking to us today. Yeah. Uh, hi, Jess. Yeah. Nice so here. walk me through here. What are your concerns when it comes to uh, the body cameras? Well, so, and I think your intro sort of didn't quite frame what, what was approved. So the issue here is that this is not costed out. And, mm-hmm. and really what's what's been put forward is a commitment to equip all frontline police officers with body cams by 2025. So effectively, this motion sort of writes a blank check um, with, with no sort of sense of, of a lot of the really serious issues around what it's going to cost, how the data is stored, where the data is stored, privacy concern issues, all those kind of implementation pieces. And, and it's quite reckless. Every other city in Canada that's that's been, including the RCMP, I would add, that has been exploring body-worn cameras have been doing so in, in, a, in a pilot and in a field testing kind of capacity. The RCMP big rollout is really a 300-unit field test uh, that they're doing right now to, to make the business case and to really actually get the data and get the costing straight. Um, you know, and, and, and this doesn't do that. And ironically, the Vancouver Police Board, I mean, so we as a city of council, we don't actually direct police. Mm-hmm. We have a separately appointed and elected board. Vancouver Police Board that, that does that work. The police board had actually requested $200,000 uh, to run a pilot in 2023 to look at body cameras. And that, that, that was passed by the police board on November 30th. It hasn't been brought to us for, you know, formal enactment and consideration because, uh, Mayor Simmons' party want to want to kick the budget over to March, um, and and make those decisions then. But the reality is, is even the police board wanted to approach this in a, in a more methodical and measured manner, and 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 do a pilot and figure out how it could work and what it's going to cost, and then make the big ask. What we've done here is basically leapfrogged uh, the the sort of diligence that the police board were going to do, and just basically committed to a blank check to ensure that we've got body cameras by 2025 in keeping with the campaign promise that ABC had made. Mm -hmm. Now, some would say there is probably a body of work out there in the United States. Uh, The municipality of Delta also had a pilot project, to my understanding. Is there not enough data out there already to give you a sense of whether or not you should move forward with this? Whether you support it or not, that there's enough data out there and research, a body of work out there, that you can already decide whether you want to move forward with it. Well, I mean, if 
we're going to look at the body of work out there, I wouldn't say it's especially conclusive. There's a very mixed opinion. There's a lot of privacy concerns, and and there's not a lot of evidence that really supports that body cameras make uh, outcomes necessarily different. It does aid in 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 the sort of um, reporting side of things, if, but it doesn't necessarily make folks safer or make for more accountable sort of policing. Um, there's certainly differing opinions on that, and I and I'm not necessarily going to weigh in on that. And I wouldn't compare. Uh, the city of Delta to the city of Vancouver as far as policing needs. I think they're probably quite different. Um, again, I, I don't know what the city of Delta policing needs are, but I know that we have pretty unique policing needs here in the city of Vancouver. And I think, again, that's why the police board wanted to do this right and and run a pilot and figure out what it is that we need. We may need something entirely different than, for instance, Delta needs for their body-worn cameras Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the civilian chief civilian director of the Independent Investigations Office said body-worn cameras will make it easier for uh, investigators to spot misconduct by police, and in many cases, one would argue even private citizens, and uh, can help sort of shut cases rather quickly or, and deal with those situations. Do you buy that argument? Uh, I mean, potentially, sure, but I think that there's there's also, I would suggest, avenues in the, in the actual criminal justice system if we want to look at, at sort of you know, prosecuting offenders and, and dealing with, you know, violent offenders and repeat offenders, that even with with evidence and testimonial and stuff, we see that folks don't get uh, sort of the, 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 the justice path that perhaps people are looking for. So I don't know that cameras necessarily change that outcome. Um, you know, we also have to take a look at the sort of court system if we want, to, you know, and the, and the larger criminal justice system. I mean, I do want to highlight, though, that since you're citing the, the, the Privacy Commission reports, um, because that is actually the Privacy Commissioner Canada report is included in this motion. And ironically, the, the motion quite deviates from a lot of the recommendations in the report. And I, I think there's a really notable quote in here from the Privacy Commissioner of Canada on the guidance for the use of body-worn cameras in law enforcement uh, that specifically says body-worn cameras should not be adopted simply because they may be considered a popular enforcement tool. They must be judged necessary to address specific operational circumstances in the jurisdiction they are deployed in. And again, I think that speaks to the need for a methodical and measured approach and a pilot where we can figure out what kind of cameras we need, how they would be deployed, what the privacy concerns are, where the data is going to be stored, Mm -hmm. what does it mean for folks, and most importantly, what it's going to cost. You know, this is a council uh, with Mayor Sim that has committed already to to 100 new police officers and 100 nurses. That's a $16 million commitment right there that they made out of our, our emergency contingency budget. And we have no idea what the final bill is going to be, but they have already made a commitment to that. We know that our budget is now going to be punted over to March, and we're going to have to make some pretty big decisions because I can tell you between those commitments to, to, to new police officers and new nurses and, and potentially now these body-worn cameras, we're into well over $20 million. And that, that is going to come out of taxes for the people of Vancouver. And, 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 and I would argue we would have to hold the council, the ABC commissioners and, and the mayor and all, all the, the entire party uh, accountable for that. But they did run on it as well. And they've said they're going to find savings. If they can't, then they're held accountable for that. But, you know, they're certainly running on their, the, the platform that they ran on, what they got elected on, is what they're trying to enact at this early stage. I'm, I'm trying to understand, you're not against you know, cam- and, and, you're, but you're not against cameras per se. It, your idea is process. Let's, let's do the pilot project next year, test it, analyze it, debate it, 
and then make a decision whether we move forward or not. It's not fundamentally that you're still against cameras because one could argue that, look, when the camera is there, the police officer is going to behave themselves. And I'm saying police officers don't behave themselves. But the private citizen who has been pulled over, perhaps for doing something or not, will also behave themselves. And and then if it does end up in court, you do have some video of it, right? I mean, uh, on the surface of it, it seems to be cost-effective. In some cases, things won't end up in court. That will save us money. Some would argue at the very least that exact is exactly where the public wants to go. Again, I mean, I think that there's there's a body of evidence out there that suggests a, a counter-argument to that, that it isn't an effective tool mm-hmm. and uh, that it's not a cost-effective tool. So, and, and I'm not an expert, and I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't presume to, 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 to understand it. And certainly I wouldn't compare, like, the outcome in Delta or the outcome in, in Kentucky or the outcome in, in, in London, England, with what, what, what it would look like here in Vancouver. And I think that's the key to a measured re- approach. And look, I get that these are commitments and that ABC are intent upon running through all their campaign commitments as quickly as they can and to show that they're, they're serious about those commitments. And I get that. That's politics. What, what I am saying, though, is that there's still a process and, mm-hmm. and that they can, they can make the waves about those commitments. They can, and, you know, I tried to give them an out with this motion and say, hey, look, Let's refer this this commitment to body cameras by 2025 and allow the Vancouver Police Board, who are duly authorized to do this, the opportunity to run the pilot as they see fit. And and we've we've not done that. We've seen political interference in policing, which I think is is a bad precedent. And and frankly, I think it's a really reckless approach to 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 our budgetary commitments that we do have to make. We're going into you know, we have a lot of inflationary costs that are going to change mm-hmm. the challenge. A lot of the services that Vancouverites rely on across our city. And we've seen very significant and really untested investments into stuff um, to fulfill campaign promises. And they didn't have to go that way. Yeah. They could have just sort of paid lip service to the promises, set us in the direction, but allowed the real process to take place and to really get some some accurate sort of validate, validated numbers and accountability for the people of Vancouver, not just sort of, well, we committed to it, so we're going to do it, and we'll see what it costs us when when the bill comes in. Pete, I really want to thank you for your time. It's an interesting issue. Always uh, love having you on the show. Look forward to chatting with you again. Thanks so much. Yeah, likewise. This week and next, delegates from more than 190 countries are meeting in Montreal for a conference known as COP15 or the UN Biodiversity Conference to hash out a plan to halt the decline of ecosystems and wildlife. Think of it as a Paris Agreement, but for biodiversity. Well, now at the conference yesterday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and BC First Nations leader Dallas Smith announced $800 million for four Indigenous-led conservation initiatives across Canada. Uh, joining me now is Dallas Smith, President of Nanwaklos Council, a coalition of six BC First Nations uh, located in the Mid and North Island and on the mainland as well. Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jess. So walk me through, how important was this announcement and what would it look like in practice here in British Columbia? Well, the the area that we're working with is known as the Great Bear Sea. Um, as you know, British Columbia has a crown jewel of the Great Bear Rainforest and First Nations communities since that announcement with Christy Clark in 2015 have been working towards the marine component of, of protection and management and stewardship. And so yesterday's announcement with the Prime Minister was a huge step forward in ensuring that the Great Bear Sea will continue to be able to provide both the, you know, the, the food resources we need, but also to protect the biodiversity values that exist within it. 
How would you protect that biodiversity? Is it a question of, of um, uh, you know, more people working in that area in regards to uh, conservation? How, how does that work in practice? Definitely. It's a little bit of both. We, we need to really have boots on the ground. And so we're going to have um, more guardians out there actually making sure that the areas that we do set aside for protection are, are kept untouched. But also having guardian presence out there for the areas that we do agree for some sustainable development that the rules and regulations that we're building with the levels of government are going to be you know kept, kept in place and implemented. Uh, are, are you saying that perhaps some of that isn't happening now? And I mean, I, I always wonder about British Columbia. It's such a massive, um, in, in, when you talk about geography, it's just a massive um, landmass. It's a, it's a huge area to, to conserve and, and to watch closely. Uh, what are you seeing in some of these areas where you are concerned, where you need, as you say, these guardians? Well, definitely, we're seeing some, you know, un, un, undue forest practices in some areas. We are definitely seeing overfishing in a lot of areas. And because our communities are scattered throughout these remote regions, we're really ideally suited to be the ones to be out there having the eyes and ears on it because it's so important to us for our livelihoods. I mean, the Great Bear Sea has sustained our people for 10,000 years. And at the rate we're going right now, if we don't take the changes that the Prime Minister announced yesterday, we're not going to be able to continue to do that. So it's really timely. Do you have examples or your your coalition, have you seen people, let's say, illegally harvesting timber? Yes, we have. Um, we know that the guardians from the Weewee Combination in Campbell River stumbled upon some, some improper forestry practices. And we actually had to work with government to make sure that the level of fine was was high enough to be a deterrent as opposed to just be a slap on the wrist. So the role for our guardians is growing daily. Uh, and so in that case, the company that was illegally harvesting was fined? Yes, the the company was fined in the beginning by by the by the Ministry of Forests, and the fine was so little that we appealed it and used evidence um, gathered by our guardians to help make the fine. I think it was about nine times higher. Um, so we're actually putting deterrence in place as opposed to saying, you know, you shouldn't do that. That's bad. Our guardians are going to be there to have that oversight to make sure that rules are going to be honored. Shouldn't the provincial government be doing this already? Well, they're trying. It's really a capacity issue. As you were talking about, the geographical area that we're talking about is quite immense. And so we're really trying to work in collaboration with the various um, authorities that the provincial government has to work hand in hand to make sure that we'll be able to give as much oversight as we can to as much of that vast territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, it must be interesting for you, and in, in, never mind just uh, you know spending generations fighting for ownership of your land uh, is building capacity in your own communities to have these guardians, to have that knowledge around forestry and fishery. And some of it is obviously passed through generation to generation, but in regards to building educational capacity and knowledge uh, to do some of this as well. Well, that that's really the key right there is the funding announcement yesterday is going to be able to help us build a a kind of trust that we're going to be able to draw upon. We're going to be able to draw upon the interest of it to make sure that we're continuing to build that capacity. When we first started with our guardian programs, it was really about getting out of work fishermen more weeks for EI. 
so they could qualify for unemployment insurance. And now we have, you know, we have kids who are 15, 16 years old doing internships during the summer and trying to decide what's the best educational path for them to be able to grow a skill set to bring back to these communities and help safeguard it. Dallas, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Uh, great initiative. Uh, look forward to chatting with you about this issue uh, in, in the months ahead. Thanks so much. Perfect. Thanks a lot, Jess. See you um, Health officials say at least six children have died in B.C. this season from flu-related illness. Now, the number is high for a province where typically fewer than three children a year uh, die from influenza. Now, data from the B.C. Coroner's Service shows the figure marks the departure from the average two to three flu deaths recorded annually among children in the province between 2015 and 2019. Now, before the COVID-19 pandemic, the average of five to six kids died per flu season across Canada. That's data from the National Surveillance Network administered by the Canadian Pediatric Association. Joining me now to discuss this year's respiratory season is Dr. Anna Wallach. She is a family physician and assistant professor at UBC. Dr. Wallach, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, the the information specifically to the fact that six children across BC have died from the flu over the past couple of weeks is incredibly concerning. Uh, what goes through your mind when you hear of numbers like this? I mean, first of all, I was absolutely heartbroken when I'd heard about that. Any death is is significant and heartbreaking, but six children in the span of a month is unusual and is absolutely horrifying. Usually in a flu season, which usually goes from about October to April, the previous numbers from the BC coroner would say about two or three children in that four-month span. when So six children in one month is horrifying and speaks to two things. One is just the sheer volume of cases that are going around at the moment. There's just so much influenza going around, but it also speaks to the severity of the strain current that is currently facing us. Why do we have this type of severity today and now? So there are multiple factors. Um, there are a couple of theories floating around as to, you know, this is the first time we've seen flu in a few years because the COVID precautions that we had over the last two years suppressed um, the transmission of influenza and other respiratory viruses, so people weren't necessarily exposed to it. Another theory going around is that COVID is likely harming people's immune system, and therefore it's harder to mount a proper immune response. I can't speak too well to either of those because they're still being studied, but the biggest one that I think is playing a a significant role, especially in our children, is the fact that we have such a low vaccination rate in our children. We know that the influenza vaccine helps prevent and minimize the severity of serious illness and death. And the fact that only 15 to 20% of our children are vaccinated um, speaks to the fact that we are seeing more severe illnesses because those children who are vaccinated and are getting influenza should not be getting as severely sick. Mm -hmm. Uh, Does this speak at all to uh, other preparation planning we could have done collectively as a government, as a society, uh, beyond just you know getting a shot, as we as the health minister was on the show last week, and we were talking about other things, but he ended the interview with "Go get uh, get get your shot," and it was the right thing to say. But is there other things we could have done as as a system wide health as a health system that could have better prepared us for for this year? I think 
one of the things is actually what we could have not done. And I, one of the things I've said about the flu registration system for this year is if it isn't broke, don't break it. Because, you know, in previous years, it was really easy to just walk into the pharmacy with mom, dad, and kids would go to the pharmacy and say, hey, I want my flu shot. And you'd be able to walk in and get and, and get your shots. Now with the get vaccinated system, there was an unnecessary barrier that was put up with with patients, um, with, with booking appointments. So, and parents having to take time off work and book those appointments, it, it just made things a little bit too hard. So that's one thing. And the other thing I know we worked on campaigning for getting the COVID shot and maybe having to had snuck in the flu shot at the time might have been a, a good idea to like kind of, it, it's, it's hard because when you're pairing COVID and flu um, vaccines, the social media misinformation and disinformation machine works overtime and they're mm. still trying to, the anti-vax movement is trying to pair them both, but it also would have been nice to hear, get your COVID shots, get your COVID boosters, get your flu shots. And, you know, it would have hopefully sunk into people's consciousness for um consciousness and maybe some planning to getting um, immunization clinics at schools, for example, bringing the shots to the kids and making it a heck of a lot easier for, for kids to get vaccinated. Are other uh, jurisdictions, other provinces, saying this, seeing the same type of fatalities and severity that we're seeing here in British Columbia? There are reports coming out of Ontario. I think there was a latest one where there was a two-year-old, two-year-old who had actually died on the floor of a hospital in in Ontario, which was absolutely horrifying. Um, and so we are seeing some severity there. We're also seeing severity in the U.S. And we're seeing, um, we, we'd heard of some from Australia, but I think B.C., and that's why I think the, the, um, the vaccination rate does have a key role in this because B.C., we haven't heard of like six in a month. This is, this is different. This is something else. Um, how hopeful are you that we'll be able to get through the season uh, and not see more deaths? I mean, it's, it's impossible for you to predict, and I understand that. Uh, but do you think the message is getting across to people? My hope is that, I mean, today, now that, now that the, um, the story of, of the six tragic deaths have come out, I'm getting a lot of phone calls from parents asking for their shots, so asking for their kids' shots. So I think I am hoping that that something is going across. The the and we know that Dr. Bellum has announced that there's going to be a vaccination blitz this weekend, and they're like getting rid of appointments. So hopefully, it makes things a lot easier for people. For me, the biggest thing is that you know even if we vaccinated everybody today. Um, they still aren't protected for two weeks because it takes that long for the vaccine to start working. Mm -hmm. Um, So we need to reduce transmission as well throughout this holiday season and activate those other layers of protection that we we all know about, masks, hand-washing, respiratory etiquette, staying home when you're sick. Um, And then hopefully if we get the vaccination, vaccination rate up and if we get transmission down, then hopefully we don't see a severe we don't see this as severe in the coming months, but again, I have no idea. Well, it's a very challenging time, and I really appreciate you making time for us today to talk about the importance of this. Thank you once again. Thank you for having me.
Brittany Griner, the WNBA star who was held for months uh, in Russian prison on drug charges, uh, was released today in a one-for-one prisoner swap for uh, international arms dealer Victor Bout, bringing an end to an ordeal that sparked intensive high-level negotiations uh, between the U.S. and the Kremlin to secure her freedom. Though the prisoner swap uh, took place in the United Arab Emirates, the exchange agreement negotiated with Moscow in recent weeks was given final approval by uh, President Joe Biden within just the last week. Here is President Biden uh, speaking on Brittany Griner's release. This is a day we've worked toward for a long time. We never stopped pushing for her release. It took painstaking and intense negotiations, and I want to thank all the hardworking public servants across my administration who worked tirelessly to secure her release. I also want to thank the UAE for helping us facilitate Brittany's return, because that's where she landed. These past few months have been hell for Brittany and for Charlie and her entire family and all her teammates back home. People all across the country have learned about Brittany's story, advocated for her release, stood with her through, throughout this terrible ordeal. And I know that support meant a lot to her family. I'm glad to be able to say that Brittany's in good spirits. She, uh, she's relieved to finally be heading home. And the fact remains that she's lost months of her life experienced the needless trauma. She deserves space, privacy, and time with her loved ones to recover and heal from her time being wrongfully detained. That was uh, President Joe Biden speaking earlier today. Well, joining us now is Global News Washington correspondent Jennifer Johnson, who has been following this story. Jennifer, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. So what has the reaction been in Washington to today's news of the release of Brittany Griner? Well, twofold. I mean, first, a lot of people are very happy that the Biden administration was able to get Brittany Griner out of a Russian jail. But in the last month, she's been in a Russian penal colony in really very bad, harsh conditions. So um, a lot of people are applauding the move. There are certainly others that are saying, how did Brittany Griner get out of Russian captivity before Paul Whelan? Paul Whelan is a former U.S. Marine who was um, arrested in Russia in 2018 and sentenced to... Uh, 16 years in prison for allegedly spying, which he denies and the United States denies. But so there's, there's, you know, two reactions. Some people saying this is a great thing. Brittany Griner is out of there. Others wondering how she got out before Paul Whelan. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that the Secretary of State did address that today, Anthony Lincoln, in a press conference saying that this was a one and only deal. It was either Brittany Griner or it was nobody. And, you know, while some people don't think it was a fair trade, Brittany Griner for Victor Boot, who was a notorious arms dealer, Russian notorious um, arms dealer, um, this, this was a one and only deal, according to the Secretary of State. So either they were getting her out now or never. Uh, do you think, uh, I, I, and I understand what this administration is saying, do you think uh, Ms. Griner's profile, because she is a professional athlete and many other professional athletes supporting her publicly, I remember call, uh, uh, basketball stars like LeBron James saying that more needs to be done. Obviously, you, the, the power of basketball in the community there. Did that have any role, do you think, to play just in regards to pressure uh, that could be um, put on the administration to do something? Oh, certainly. I mean, when you have people like LeBron James, you know, calling for the Biden administration, for the president to do something and other high-profile athletes, and it's constantly in the news, constantly being covered. I mean, most Americans don't know who Paul Whelan is. But, you know, many, many Americans, I mean, she's a two-time Olympic gold medalist. People know who Brittany Griner is. And of course, that's going to put pressure on the president. And, you know, 
I'm sure it had some influence, but, you know, the party line, the White House line, is is, it was the only deal on the table, Mm -hmm. so they took it. Uh, And and in regards to um, the politics, and, and what I mean by that is you're talking about the arms dealer, Mr. Boat. I mean, there must be a significant uh, portion of the population also talking about the fact that what have we given up? Somebody who was at one point allegedly uh, selling arms to Al-Qaeda and many other groups, that we uh, a known criminal who uh, really dealt with a lot of bad people who should still be in jail and now he's free for a professional athlete. There must be that pushback as well, I'm assuming from Republicans as well. Yeah, I mean, certainly Republicans are already talking about that and it's all over social media. I mean, Victor Booth's a bad guy. I mean, he is, he has um, been a bad guy for many decades. He has um, been wanted by many countries, and he's been in an American, a federal prison in the Midwest, in America, for about a little over 10 years. Um, and I think that was part of this, that he did have a 25-year sentence, but he has served 10 years of that. Um, certainly Russia wanted him back, has wanted him back for several years. Um, but there was great concern, especially in the last month after Brittany Brenner was put in this penal colony, that she may not survive. And I don't think that that was something that the Biden administration wanted to take the chances of. So, um, I mean, there, there was conversations between her and Brittany Brenner's wife that she thought she might die there. And so I think that came into play and, you know, they made the deal. Well, a very interesting uh, deal uh, for sure and, and much to be discussed as well. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time today. really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, that was Jennifer Johnson, Global News Washington correspondent, uh, talking to us about uh, the release of Brittany Griner, the WNBA star, uh, who was held uh, for many months uh, in uh, Russian prisons, including a penal colony, uh, released today. And President Joe Biden spoke uh, uh, about her release uh, earlier today uh, as well. Now, there has also been, as uh, uh, Jennifer said, uh, much concern over uh, retired U.S. Marine Paul Whelan, who has been in custody for years. Uh, today, uh, Brittany Griner's spouse, Sherelle Griner, spoke on uh, Ms. Griner, uh, Ms. Griner's release, but also did mention Mr. Whalen, who, as I said, has and still remains in custody for nearly uh, four years. Take a listen. Today, my family is whole, but as you all are aware, there's so many other families who are not whole. And so BG's not here to say this, but I will gladly speak on her behalf and say that BG and I will remain committed to the work of getting every American home, including Paul, whose family is in our hearts today as we celebrate BG being home. We do understand that there are still people out here who are enduring what I endured the last nine months of missing tremendously their loved ones. So thank you everybody for your support. Um, And today it's just a happy day for me and my family. So I'm going to smile right now. (laughs) Um, Thank you. That is uh, Sherelle Griner, a spouse to Brittany Griner. Happy today, of course, that Brittany has been released. But as I said, uh, Paul Whelan, who uh, was convicted for espionage by uh, Russian authorities, remains in jail. He's been there for four years. He denies all of those charges. Uh, Ms. Griner was released uh, because there was a prisoner swap. Uh, the U.S. had to give up Victor Bout, who uh, was an international arms dealer in jail in the United States for a 25-year sentence. He had, uh, I think, been in jail for about 10 years of that, 11 years of that, Uh, but he has dealt with some very uh, uh, bad groups out there, uh, Al-Qaeda and many others, that he has been known to sell weapons to. 
Our next guest wiped away tears during yesterday's cabinet swearing-in. Nikki Sharma is British Columbia's newest Attorney General. She was first elected in 2020 in Vancouver Hastings before seeking election. She worked as a lawyer with a practice focused on representing Indigenous people, including residential school survivors. She's also served as the chair of the Vancouver Park Board. Nikki Sharma, thank you for joining us today. No, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I know yesterday was a very uh, personal moment for you and the swearing in. What was going through your mind as you went uh, and and swore the oath and uh, just your day? What what was going through your mind? Um, Well, first that it was an incredible honor that um, I got to be sworn in as the Attorney General. And I think it really just hit me in the moment. And when... um, people uh, started standing and clapping. I couldn't hold it back. So <laughs> it was <laughs> emotional. Unfortunately, I think all of the official pictures will have me crying, but I am very excited to get to work for British Columbians. Mm-hmm. Well, yesterday, um, as we covered the swearing-in, we also covered another story of a local uh, downtown Vancouver business where they had their window broken, and these things do happen, And uh, but they've happened, been happening on a regular basis. Uh, on top of that, you have random attacks in our city. In the case of that small business, the second time their window had been broken, each time that happens, they spend $5,000, so $10,000 this year just on broken windows. Uh, there has been uh, certainly conversation on a tougher approach in dealing with prolific offenders. Uh, there has been a conversation by the Premier himself as it regards to a bail directive. What are your thoughts first and foremost? Do you think this is the right way to go, and will you be continuing this bail directive to Crown Council that in regards to repeat and prolific offenders, there has to be a tougher stance against them? Yeah, so I think first and foremost, we hear from British Columbians that community safety is of top of mind and they're concerned about that. So my predecessors in Premier Eby, when he was sworn in, kind of hit the ground running on building on the work that was happening before. And all of that work is founded in speaking to communities. So whether it's local leaders or community organizations or our police force on on seeing what was needed. Um, And of course, the experts um, with the report. So, you know, I think that our job as government is to listen to people and to implement that. So certainly as I take on my role as Attorney General, I'm committed to that work and the community um, safety plan that was put in place through those consultations. And that includes a whole bunch of things, right? And it's basically rooted in putting resources in the places where it's needed. So whether that's enforcement, um, um, and David Eby has announced more money to that, um, police, the police force of B.C., or directions um, on how we deal with the federal bail rules that are having impacts in communities, particularly when it comes to repeat violent offenders, mm-hmm. but also with commu- working with local local leaders on how we can make sure that things like smashed windows and those things that are happening that are you know um, people are complaining about more often can be fixed. Uh, can you do as much as people think you can do as Attorney General? I know obviously you have authority, you're a minister, member of the Executive Council, uh, but these changes, some, you're talking about the, some of the broader ones in regards to the investment for new police officers, uh, uh, a specialized unit looking at pro- prolific offenders. Is there anything you think government can do at the provincial level on the sh- in the short term? Because that's what people really want. They understand the long-term challenges. What can you do in the short term? Yeah, and I think there's there's a whole bunch of action set on that plan that that you know part of my role now is to making sure implemented, and some of them have been started already with the directions around bail conditions. Um, for example, for repeat violent offenders, um, to start to get um, some clear uh, directions and toolbox for crown prosecutors to deal with under the federal rules how they can manage that. Um, and I really do think there's lots that. 
Um, I'm hoping to accomplish the role for British Columbians, but I also know I can't do it alone. And, and that means working with other ministers. That means working with communities and community organizations. Um, and my portfolio has, under my mandate letter, a few items. One is the anti-racism work. Um, another one is the Indigenous Justice Strategy, which is certainly something from my background I'm really excited to be a part of um, rolling out and, and a whole bunch of other things. And I'm sure things will come up along the way, but um, I, I, you know, I just am committed to doing my best for British Columbians, whatever that role may be. Do you think in, in many cases people are struggling with uh, addiction and, and drug challenges that are committing these crimes? Do you think there is a role for mandatory treatment? Is that ever going to be on the table for you as an attorney general? Um, you know, I, I think that we really, a lot of those those questions, and I, I, I expect you'll probably invite our new minister on that file, which is um, Jennifer Whiteside, who will be thinking about um, how that plays out. I mean, in the way the loss is set up right now, there are times where there's um, involuntary treatment, but it's always time um, barred, and there's times where it's voluntary treatment. But really, um, what I think we need to focus on is getting the resources at the right places at the right time to meet the needs of the people where they're at. And so that does mean investing in voluntary treatment and recovery centers um, across the province. And certainly, I think Minister Whiteside will be um, looking at all the ways that we can start to tackle that issue. I think, you know, there's a lot of work we need to do and continue to do in implementing um our, our plan to, to prevent the kind of impacts of the overdose price crisis. And I was sitting on a select standing committee um, not long ago before I was attorney general, and that was a cross-party committee. So we had BC Liberals, BC Greens, um, and NDP members, and we have clear recommendations on there that I think set out um, a pathway that we all endorsed. And I know that we'll be hard, hard at work trying to implement um, a lot of the things in there. What do you say to critics in the opposition who said, look, this is, hasn't just happened because of COVID. This has been a slow, long slide, and the NDP have been in power for five years now, that a lot of this, this culture that's been where, where you have a revolving door when it comes to the justice system, where there isn't accountability, that has happened under the NDP's watch. What do you say to that argument that the catch and release that, that people perceive is the justice system? Some of this, the government, your government, wears. Well, you know, the, the this is an issue that cities across the world are dealing with, but that's, you know, I, we hear British Columbians, we hear them saying to us that there are challenges in their communities that they want to address, and we've tackled it the same way we're tackling, we tackled the pandemic and all the other challenges, is working together and solving those issues. And with the Community Safety Action Plan and the things that are underway right now and the things that I will continue as Attorney General, we're committed to making sure that people can see that community safety that they want, but also that we're investing in the causes of, of these crimes. So all the mental health supports and the housing and all those kind of social determinants that, that may lead to, to um, people having, uh, you know, issues and challenges in their life that we know we need to invest in. And since being in government, we've done that. We've invested over and over again, but we also know there's more work to do and and that'll be part of the thing that I look forward to being a part of. Well, Minister, you've got a, a big portfolio, uh, a lot of responsibilities uh, and a lot of challenges ahead of you. Look forward to having you on this show again to talk about uh, those very challenges you'll have to deal with uh, on this program. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And anytime, I look forward to our next conversation. Take care. Let's talk about work, the daily grind. Well, over 100 companies globally, probably in the US, the UK and Ireland, uh, signed on to a study of a four-day work week. The trial ran from June 
to this week. It is spearheaded by Four Day Week Global, a nonprofit organization founded by Andrew Barnes, which is a uh, who is a New Zealand entrepreneur who implemented a four day week in his own financial services company, Perpetual Guardian, after a trial uh, in 2018. Now, researchers at Cambridge University, Boston College, and Oxford University will measure the impact of a shorter week uh, on product productivity and well being. The four day week trial will not publish its findings until February of next year, but uh, it was interesting to watch private sector companies globally uh, take on um, this issue and implement it and see if it will work. Joining me now to talk about the four-day work week is Jeff Mason. He's an employment and human rights lawyer for Miller Thompson LLP. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So, uh, I mean, you're a labor lawyer, you're a human rights lawyer. First of all, your thoughts on this four-day work week study, what, what do you think of it? I, I think it's interesting. I think I mean, it's it's an idea that it was kind of a niche idea pre-pandemic, and it's it's gotten a lot of steam the last couple of years, um, as as other traditional uh, workplace norms have have been challenged. I mean, I, I think it's it's a, a great idea in principle. I think it's um, you know the, the the results have been mixed somewhat. It's certainly not something that works with every organization, and it really has to be kind of tailored to the particular company and workforce, but. Uh, where it does work, it can be a, a huge advantage to employees and employers. Uh, is this? Uh, I mean, do, is this more of sort of a white collar? Uh, this this type of campaign more geared towards white collar workers. I mean, uh, it, or can, do you think it can be sort of implemented uh, throughout the economy for blue collar workers as well? I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily draw the distinction between white collar and, and blue collar work, but but there is certainly. You know some limitations in terms of the, the type of, of organizations and, and industries that this works in. I mean, the, the first question that I, I'd ask any client who's looking to implement a, a four-day work week is the effect that it's going to have on the nature of the business, right? So, so some organizations that are, are kind of more tied to a traditional five-day work week, law firms, financial institutions, insurance companies, for example, you know, you, you can't really shift to a four-day work week without really kind of curtailing and harming client service. So it, it works in some organizations. It, it doesn't work in others, but it, it you know, it, it, it doesn't necessarily come down to, to blue-collar or white-collar jobs. Hmm. Uh, I, I guess the other question in all of this is how do you measure success, doesn't it? I mean, is it revenue? Is it happiness? And I don't know how you gauge that, but I, I guess it comes down to how do you measure success as well? Absolutely. I mean, I think from the from the organizational employer side, you know, obviously the measure of success often kind of comes down to numbers and, and whether or not there's a, uh, an increase in uh, revenue or, or productivity. I think that organizations are probably taking a bit more of an expansive view of, of what success means in this context, um, you know, particularly at a time when employee recruitment and retention has been an issue for a lot of organizations. I think companies are starting to realize that, you know, steps toward employee satisfaction and engagement, work-life balance, stuff that can really help uh, employee satisfaction and engagement, that, that actually helps companies. So I think that that's, that's tied to the, the kind of the, the measure of success. Uh, if someone were to, uh, the client were to come to you um, and say, hey, I'd like to do a four-day work week, what kind of broader things would you want to tell them on the legal side and just, uh, you know, <laughs> to set it up uh, and in regards to just trying to make it a success? What kind of advice would you want to give them? 
Well, so as I said, I mean, the first thing you, you look at is whether or not it's it's feasible in terms of the the operational requirements of the the organization. Now, assuming it is, um, not all four day work weeks are the same. So, I mean, you can have a four day work week that reduces hours and compensation. You can have a four day work week that reduces hours but keeps compensation the same. Uh, you can have four-day work weeks, uh, as I think the, the trial in Belgium has done, that, that just condenses a five-day work week, so 40 hours into four days, and, and keeps pay the same. So the, the first thing you look at is is what sort of model of a four-day work week um, uh, would work for that organization. But uh, any company that, that wants to try it, and the, the first thing I would say is, is to implement a pilot project because, you know, the, the results for – Four-day work weeks have been mixed. You know, in, in some cases they've been, uh, you know, great successes. In other cases, they haven't worked. So, I, I wouldn't tell any organization to to commit to it long term right off the bat. But uh, that I think it's in most companies' interest to at least uh, test the waters, see if it works. If you implement a pilot project appropriately, um, you can you can you can kind of dip your toes, see if it works for your company. If it does, you can maintain it. If if it doesn't. Um, you, you can revert back to a traditional five-day week. Now, tied to that, and, and I think this is important in terms of the, the legal advice I would give, is that when you are starting a, a pilot program of a four-day work week that has to be implemented in a very specific way to allow an organization to revert back to a five-day work week if need be. Um, you've seen a lot of organizations that have kind of gotten into hot water trying to trying to revert back to five-day work week. So there's, there's specific ways that you want to implement it, but I would, I would normally recommend at least giving it a trial if it's in line with your, your staff's preferences um, and, and you think it could benefit the, uh, the organization. Um, how much of this, I mean, when, when we talk about this, and, and I can see the benefits of it, you know, we've also had a conversation about uh, working from home. Um, how much of this do you think is being driven by COVID fatigue and how much of this do you think is a broad business trend that that's actually real? And because because the job today is twenty four seven, some argue it demands a lot more. It's much faster. The world is much faster. How much of it, of this is just COVID fatigue? That you know we just we want to do something different because we're just tired. And do you think this can stick? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's 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 tied to COVID. I wouldn't necessarily consider it to be sort of just a, a COVID trend, though. I think coming out of the pandemic, you've seen so many traditional workplace norms being challenged. Um, and this is kind of part and parcel with that. And I don't see the, the genie being kind of put back in the bottle in that sense. Once employee expectations change, um, you're, you're kind of stuck with, with, with what employees' current expectations are. So I, I don't really see this being something that, um, uh, you know, suddenly staff writ large are going to kind of forget about pushing pushing toward a four-day work week. I think, I think really whether or not this is going to be a lasting change is going to depend more on uh, how effective this turns out to be for, for organizations long term. I think in the next year or two, as we see more companies uh, do these sorts of pilot projects and we have more data on the, the, the outcomes, 
that's going to really drive whether or not we see this as, as more of a trend or, or something that's going to be long-term. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and you've raised a very good point. It would be very difficult to do in a law office because I'm sure clients on a Friday or a Monday would want to be, know that their lawyer is reachable. And I'm sure the CKNW is not about to shut down their shows on Fridays and Mondays because yours truly wants a day off. So it is interesting and it's, it's, a, it's a fabulous conversation. And I look forward to seeing the findings in, 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 um, when they come out in February from Cambridge and, and Oxford for it as well. Jeff, thank you so much for your time, my friend. I always enjoy chatting with you. Thanks very much, Jess. Talk to you soon. Now streaming. Okay, what's going on? What's trending? Streaming with Stephen. It is streaming with Stephen because we help you answer that question we're all asking uh, this time of the week. What am I going to watch this week on uh, streaming services? Netflix, Apple Plus, uh, Disney Plus, all of them. Well, uh, Stephen will be joining us, but I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, of course, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's relationship uh, that has been released on Netflix. uh, The first of three episodes, and I can tell you the Brits have been not reacting well to it. Take a listen to Piers Morgan's response uh, to this new Netflix documentary. How much damage can they inflict on our royal family, on our monarchy? How can they make it all about them? How, how can they continue to play the victims when they live in such unparalleled luxury the other side of the world? This gruesome twosome only survived by cashing in on what's left of their royal status now. I said it before, I'll say it again tonight, King Charles should strip them of all their remaining titles and cast them out from any connection to the royal family. How could any of them trust them as far as I could throw them? Because without it, they're just whining millennial windbags with a permanent victim complex, knowing that victimhood is what makes them all the money. That, of course, is uh, Piers Morgan. Welcome, Stephen. Well, speaking of uh, whining millennial windbags, here I am. (laughs) (laughs) You said it, not me. I did enjoy. Uh, generally, I don't agree with Piers. Well, I don't always agree with him anyway. But I, uh, this time, I kind of thought, you know, maybe he's got a point in regards to all of this. But uh, what did you think of uh, this release so far? It's creating a lot of buzz. Oh, my God, Jazz. This is a big one we're going to do today. So we're going to spend a lot of time on this one. Six parts. Six parts of drama. This whole docuseries behind Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and the rest of the royal family. It's a mess, Jazz. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, I just listening to peers. I, you you have other reaction from uh, uh, from uh, England. I do. Yeah. Well, here's a here's a mix of uh, reactions from other media outlets and commentators. It's a really interesting thing here because, of course, on any fair analysis of this, Megan has turned her husband has turned Harry against his family and. T- created this huge rift between him and his parents, between him and his grandparents, between him and his brother. So this whole idea that somehow the family was against him is ridiculous. She is the root cause of all of this. Yes, Meghan is uniquely unlikable. I understand that. I get it. But Harry is a grown man. You know, he is not a child. He's no longer, you know, naive 22-year-old. He is the one who abandoned his family. They're his blood and he has walked away from them. And I think he has to bear ultimate responsibility. He was born into this life of privilege and supposed duty and he wants all the privilege with none of the duty. Uh, Undoubtedly, the uh, Netflix documentary is going to cause enormous problems for the royal family and that's just the beginning before the biography by autobiography by harry so a great challenge and um uh, king charles has got a lot on his plate 
Well, that didn't go very well, did it, in regards to winning hearts and minds? No, there's a lot of controversy about this release, too. Um, apparently, according to the BBC, at least three of the images used in the trailers are believed to be uh, taken from different events that have nothing to do with Harry and Meghan, with one of them being, uh, like, there's a shot in the trailer of a bunch of paparazzi just, like, taking pictures and stuff. Apparently, it's actually from the Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 premiere in 2011, which is before Harry and Meghan met. Oh, so that's just one of the few things things that are just uh buzzing around this so uh, i'm very here. curious uh, in regards to the the series itself like it, it's interviews mm-hmm. with with like their friends uh, and them con- uh, talking about how they met and how uh, i guess they were treated by the royals after they got married basically yeah so it, inc- it the spotlight's on them and they do have some friends as well like you said to kind of provide their context of the story and it's a uh, it's two parts. So the first part is three episodes. It comes out today, uh, which is exactly three months after the death of Queen Elizabeth. And then the second set is going to come out on December 15th, so next week. And it clashes with Princess Kate's carol service. Wow. wow. Oh, my God. What a mess, Jazz. It what a is. mess. And do you have, uh, do you have uh, some uh, sound from, that, uh, uh, from the series? I do have the trailer here. Let me just play it right now. There's a hierarchy of the family. You know, there's leaking, but there's also planting of stories. There was a war against Meghan to suit other people's agendas. It's about hatred. It's about race. It's a dirty game. The pain and suffering of women marrying into this institution, this feeding frenzy. I realized they're never going to protect you. I was terrified. I didn't want history to repeat itself. No one knows the full truth. We know the full truth. It uh, well, I love the music and everything else, and and making it sound very dramatic. I mean, uh, in regards, so they're going to touch a little bit about how they met some of the paparazzi. Is it the usual complaints about the British paparazzi? Oh, definitely, yeah, and, and just how the royal family painted them and the tabloids. Do they attack the family? Uh, I think they probably have some comments about um, marrying into the royal family, the difficulties that come with it, especially from Meghan's perspective. Okay. Yeah. Well, we think we've talked enough on on Harry and Meghan. Uh, what else is out there this week? Well, you know, let's t- yeah, let's just take a break from all of that. I'm already getting tired talking about this. Um, if you want something more exciting for children. That doesn't have to do anything to do with Royal. Um, Guillermo del Toro, he's the popular director. He has his own new and unique take on the classic story about a wooden puppet brought to life. You probably know that as Pinocchio. Here's Hmm. the trailer. I want to tell you a story. It's a story you may think you know, but (laughs) you don't. Papa! (gasps) It speaks! He's just a puppet! No, I'm not! I'm a real boy! People are sometimes afraid of things they don't know. I don't understand. Everyone shall love you and call your name Pinocchio. Pinocchio! Isn't that magical, Jazz? It just sounds such a... It's like a good stress reliever from this whole royal drama. <laughs> and it's got some uh, high-profile uh, actors in it, too, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. So the first voice you heard there, uh, you probably recognize that as Star Wars' very own Obi-Wan Kenobi, Ewan McGregor, uh, as Sebastian J. Cricket, who is uh, in the Disney version, you know him as D- Jiminy Cricket, Tilda Swinton's in it, uh, as well as Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things, uh, and Kate Blanchett, among others. Well, so that's... And and, and it's directed by Gil- Gilmore, Gilmore 
del Toro. So. Yeah, that's right. And it's out tomorrow on Netflix. So that's out on Netflix as well. So you can choose a quality classic like Pinocchio from a world-class director like Mr. Del Toro, or uh, you can uh, learn more about the Royals. I guarantee you, I think the Harry and Megan's going to be number one on Netflix by tomorrow. I'm going to call it right now. Exactly, Jazz. So it's a, <laughs> it's a whole mess that you could enjoy over the weekend, right? <laughs> well, I, I just, uh, I mean, I, I usually don't agree with uh, Piers Morgan, but this time, not the millennial windbag comment, but I just think... It's sort of like they're almost looking for an identity and they don't know who they are, what they are. Once you take the prince and princess title away and you're in California, what do you do? All you can do is live off your name, right? Exactly. And like in the words of Britain's favorite sweetheart. They're just whining millennial windbags. Oh, stop it, Pierce. Stop it. (laughs) I may have to play that on this show a few times. There you go. Uh, (laughs) Stephen, thank you. Thank you, Jazz. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.